Hello everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. In today's podcast, we continue with our series on clinical trials, with a fascinating discussion on the latest developments for new drugs on hypercortisolism. Dr. Blevins and I invited two key course of therapeutic scientists responsible for new drug development to talk about their work on these exciting new drugs and therapies. We are delighted to welcome Dr. Andreas Grauer, Chief Medical Officer, and Dr. Andreas Moraitis, Senior Medical Director, to our podcast. Joining us also is Mr. Mike Evans, who is the Director of Commercial Insight, Learning, and Development at Corcept. Corcept's Therapeutics is a pharmaceutical company dedicated to discovering and developing drugs that affect cortisol and the many diseases and conditions affected by cortisol, like Cushing's disease and Cushing's syndrome. These drugs under development will potentially address the serious unmet medical needs to access cortisol activity. Our discussion focused on two clinical trials called GRACE and GRADIENT currently underway. We discussed the critical needs for patients with cortisol irregularities and the need to engage patients to participate in clinical trials. This patient participation is essential for the development of new drugs and therapies for these very severe diseases. I asked Dr. Blevins to lead off the discussion with our guests, but before I turn it over to Dr. Blevins, I wanted to mention he is a Pituitary World News co-founder and the Medical Director of the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at the University of California San Francisco Medical Center, where he guides a team providing comprehensive state-of-the-art care and has special interest in Cushing syndrome, also known as hypercortisolism, and has edited a book on the subject. In his research, Dr. Blevins is interested in evaluating new methods for diagnosing Cushing syndrome. He also studies the factors that medical professionals can use to predict whether treating pituitary tumors with surgery and other methods will succeed. Here's Dr. Blevins. Thank you, Jorge. Well, it's a pleasure to have Drs. Grauer and Moratis uh, with us today and also with Mr. Evans of Corsept Pharmaceuticals. Uh, we're here to discuss today a couple of different clinical trials that relate to hypercortisolism and also clinical trials in general and how patients can participate in the benefits of, uh, of doing such. I'd like to go ahead and turn it over to Mike Evans to kick this discussion off for us today. Well, thank you, Dr. Blevins. Um, you know, I, I was really excited that we were able to get this discussion uh, together because I, I think, um, you know, I, knowing Dr. Grauer and Dr. Moritis as well as I do, and obviously understanding our clinical studies uh, and seeing how at a recent patient advocacy meeting we had, how much interest those studies generated with some of our patient advocacy group partners, I just felt like this would be, this would be a fun fun conversation for us to have and, and to hear the questions that you and JD may have for Drs. Grauer and Moritis might be interesting for your followers. So uh, I'm excited to get this kicked off. Um, I'll, I'll address, I guess, the first question to Dr. Grauer. Um, you know, Corsept obviously has a lot going on clinically. You're, you're the kind of 
uh, steering that ship from, from the big picture standpoint. Um, anything in particular that you would want to communicate to the listeners out there about um, you know, the, the, what, what we're doing as an organization in general from a clinical trial standpoint? Yeah, thank you, Mike, and um, <clears throat> thank you, Jorge and uh, Dr. Blevins, for giving us the opportunity to be here today. This is uh, it's wonderful for us to share a little bit of our research uh, with your listeners, <clears throat> and so, so thank you very much. So CORCEPT, what, what we do is in the name, CORCEPT, Cortisol Receptor. <clears throat> Cortisol, most of you know this better as the stress hormone, um, it, it um, acts by binding to a binding site, which can be in all the cells of the body. And uh, that makes these unique actions of cortisol. And what we found out was that while cortisol is essential for life, too much cortisol is not good for you. And it um, is involved in many different diseases. The, the most um, direct involvement it has in Cushing's, uh, in, in, in the whole Cushing spectrum, in Cushing syndrome, where there are uh, tumors that either produce cortisol or cortisol. And these patients clearly suffer with significant clinical consequences dependent on how severe that disease is. Um, and, and the drugs that we are developing are drugs that specifically inhibit the action of cortisol uh, at the organ levels that, that are affected by cortisol. Um, so therefore, for example, we have studies in Cushing's um, syndrome ongoing, and we can talk about those a little more, but we also have studies in oncology. We have um, <clears throat> studies in, um, in non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, fatty liver disease. Um, we have uh, studies in antipsychotic induced weight gain, and we're getting ready to start a study in what most people know is Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS, because we also have found that um, cortisol plays a significant role in that disease as well. Cool. Thank you, Dr. Grauer. Um, you know, I know we'll, we'll kind of come back to, I think, the, the Cushing studies, hypercortisolism studies. I think, um, you know, that's something that obviously I think the, the listeners of Pituitary World News have a significant interest in. Um, could you maybe just give us a, a high level frame up of you know, grace and gradient, the two studies that we'll probably focus on more specifically in this conversation? Yeah, thank you. And as is sort of introduced um, before, Cushing's is very complex, right? It can be caused by tumors of the pituitary, can be caused by tumors of the adrenal, um, it can be caused by tumors that produce cortisol or the steering hormone for cortisol in other tissues. So it's a very complex disease and it uh, can have very different degrees of severity. So we figured in order to study this disease um, in its entirety, a single study that is focused on a single patient type probably doesn't do it justice. So we're actually um, are performing multiple studies at the same time. One is sort of a more conventional study in, in, in Cushing's, in the in the Cushing's that has sort of uh, more <clears throat> significant laboratory abnormalities uh, of Cushing's and more and significant clinical abnormalities. So these are people, um, that, these are patients that have 
clearly elevated levels of cortisol uh, measured in, in multiple different ways. And they also have either diabetes or, um, or high blood pressure. Um, and, and those will be the things that we're trying to improve. And the Cushing's can be pretty much any origin. Uh, but then we have another study ongoing in patients where the Cushing syndrome is caused by an adrenal tumor. Um, and that is actually very common and it is not very well studied because they're often somewhat milder courses of disease. But one of the things that we've learned over the last decade or so was that these patients, despite not showing some of the classic features like the buffalo hump or the, the moon face, they have negative long-term consequences. They have a high rate of dying from cardiovascular diseases, so you know, myocardial infarction or stroke, um, due to the consequences of the Cushing's. And they really haven't been well studied in any kind of medication trials. So that's the other study that we're doing, the gradient study, where we are specifically looking at this particular patient population. That, that's... That's terrific. In, in terms of generally clinical trials, can you um, tell us, uh, obviously in rare disease patient participation is critical. Um, how, what needs to happen to get more people to participate in your doctor's opinion? And, and what, how can you know, a publication like Pituitary World News help in that awareness or getting the right information to, to patients? That's a great question. And, uh, you know, the classic way in clinical studies is you work with a number of expert clinical study sites across um, the country and across many countries. Our studies are being performed here in the US and in Canada, but also in, uh, in Europe, in many countries in Europe. And these centers, you know, like Dr. Blevins Center, they, they they attract a lot of these patients because that's where they're getting expert advice. Um, and expert treatment. And, um, and this is where many of these patients eventually land, right? Often after long periods where they are being taken care of um, at, the, at the local level and you know, often remain a mystery for many years until they actually see a specialist that then you know, know, knows what to do and how to guide them. But, but um, to your question, Jorge, how can pituitary world news help? The patients have to get to these centers, you know? Yeah. They have to get to these centers. They have to know that these studies are going on. They have to take some of their fate into their own hands and seek out the help. And uh, that, I think, is something that we hope we can help with uh, in, a, in a podcast like yours um, to, to just get the word out. Right, get the word out that there are studies ongoing for this disease and that they could be interesting for patients to participate in. Yes. Yeah, as you speak to, the paradigm has shifted. It used to be that uh, if you went to one of those centers and the physician that you were seeing was participating in a study or had a colleague who was participating as an investigator, it would be possible to get into that study. Um, but I think the vast majority of people with Cushing syndrome are not taken care of by experts at pituitary centers, or at least physicians who are involved in the study. So the, the shift is that patients through social media and things of that nature really can be led to find a way to obtain care 
albeit experimental, but reasonable experimental care or reasonable opportunity to participate in trials to advance knowledge and maybe gain some benefit from the uh, participation in the study in one way or another. Uh, so I think that uh, that's clearly where this modern age of social media and things like Pituitary World News and and other uh, venues are gonna be helpful to people who maybe live in the middle of Kansas where there's not a study uh, or somewhere else on the, uh, the fringes of uh, suburbia uh, where they uh, don't have access. I know, I know one other thing that had come up, um, JD, in conversations you and I have had and, and in conversations <laughs> with other um, you know, leaders within patient advocacy groups when it comes to generating interest for patients in these studies is, is having a bit of an understanding uh, about how the study's being run. Uh, yes. For instance, you know, if, I, if, if a patient, if I'm a patient suffer, suffering from Cushing syndrome, I, I'm probably, I'm sick. Uh, I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable with the idea that I may get enrolled and for six months I may be on a placebo and not realize that I'm not actually being treated. And, and that, that might deter me from wanting to seek out a, a, a pivotal study. And I think understanding a little bit, particularly the GRACE study that Dr. Grauer mentioned earlier, which is, which is specifically looking at the more kind of classically described Cushing syndrome patient, uh, understanding how that study is designed might be important for your listeners. So I'd Very like to, uh, yeah, I, I think it would be great if, if Dr. Moraita if you could um, just talk a little bit about, generally speaking, how, how that study is set up, what does that look like for a patient in, enrolling as far as receiving uh, the, study, the study drug and, and, and kind of, uh, if you could take it from there, I think that'd be very helpful. Absolutely. Th thank you for your question. Um, so uh, in, uh, we have two uh, phase three studies, as we, we mentioned initially. Uh, the first study, the GRAY study, is a study in patients with uh, overt cushings, more severe cushings. And the second study that we have is uh, in patients with less severe cushings uh, in, that uh, is usually associated with cortisol uh, secreting adenomas, uh, aden adrenal tumors that they produce smaller amounts of cortisol, that, you know, in the long run, you know, could be potentially, yeah, you know, dangerous and have associated with adverse events. So the, which is the reason why when we uh, were thinking about, you know, what should be the right design for its uh, study, we took that into account. And uh, the key thing is that, is it uh, appropriate, you know, to uh, offer placebo in a patient with severe Cushing's who is in immediate need to start treatment right now? Yes. Uh, this, this is the reason uh, that, uh, you know, the design for the GRACE study is different than the design that we have in the other study in patients with adenomas. So for the GRAY study in particular, the study has three phases. The first phase, which is the standard thing for all clinical trials, is the screening. So during the screening period, the patients you know, need to have certain assessments, certain tests to determine their eligibility. So the very first thing that we need to show is that they do have active cushions. And the, reason, and the way to do this is uh, by performing the tests that are you know, based on the end of society guidelines determine whether the patient has cortisol excess, the, the three hormone tests, the during free cortisol, the late night salivary cortisol, and the dexamethasone suppression test. And we require that the patient should have at least two out of those three tests abnormal to confirm that they do have active cushions. The second thing yeah, that is important is they need to have the comorbidities associated with cushions, because as you know, there are a lot of conditions that are associated with high cortisol, but the patient do not present with the uh, classic signs and symptoms of cushions. 
So the patient should have either abnormal glucose, they will have abnormal blood pressure, they, they, they should look pushinoid, and patients with pushing, they have a very uh, classic, you know, uh, appearance. Uh, they, they should have other comorbidities like, you know, uh, like low bone density or central obesity or the weakness that is very common and affects the, the proximal muscles uh, or the, the, the skin manifestation that the stria or the easy bruising. So they need to have some of those comorbidities to ensure that you get patients in the study, not based on the numbers only, but based on, on the symptoms of, and the signs of cushions. Then we, once the, their eligibility is confirmed, we move on to the second phase of the study, which is uh, the study that every patient begins with drug, this new drug. And we start with low doses and based on how the patients tolerate the drug and how they respond to the treatment, we increase the dose. Uh, and then once we reach either the maximum dose, which is four <coughs> capsules in our case, uh, or could be less if the patient doesn't tolerate, you know, the four capsules a day, then the patient stay on that dose for several weeks. And, at the, uh, and then uh, following that, um, uh, we uh, perform some assessments to determine whether the patient has responded or not. Now, a key uh, thing with our studies is, and, and Dr. Blevins is quite familiar with that, our compounds are uh, different compared to um, the, uh, the other medications that are used for the management of Cushing's. When you target the cortisol receptor, um, cortisol measurement becomes irrelevant. You know, you cannot use the cortisol to determine whether a patient responds or, or not to the treatment. So that's why we depend on uh, the comorbidities, on the clinical signs and symptoms uh, that the patient, patients with Cushing's frequently uh, experience. So that's why the two, uh, the key primary endpoints in our study are improvements in glucose control and improvements in blood pressure. That's the key primary endpoint. Of course, <laughs> we have a number of other, uh, you know, secondary um, uh, endpoints. We have changes in weight, um, you know, body fat composition, regulation markers, liver function tests, just name it. It's a whole list of things that we do assess in the study. But to the, to the, to determine whether a patient has responded or not at the end of this open label part of the study, the two key endpoints is glucose control and hypertension. So once we confirm that the patient has improved, there is significant clinically significant improvement in one or both of those comorbidities, because you can have patients that they don't have hypertension, they have only diabetes, or they have both, or they have both, but one is controlled. So that's why we, uh, you know, you, you can see a mix of patients. Then the, the patients move on to the third part of the study. And the third part of the study is the study that is, uh, it's, it's blinded because half of the patients that they meet those uh, criteria, the response criteria, they continue on active drug and nobody knows that because it's blinded. Sure. The investigator doesn't know, the patient doesn't know, we don't know. And then the other half are switched over to placebo. Of course, that second phase of the study is much shorter than the first one. Uh, the first part of the study is close to six months. The second part of the study is close to three months. And what we expect to see, uh, assuming that this drug is, is effective, right? We expect that the patients that uh, continue on the active drug, they should maintain their response or maybe improve further because as you know, usually with uh, treatment, continuous treatment offers you know, uh, further improvement in certain comorbidities. And patients that are switched over to placebo, we expect a deterioration of their condition. 
a worsening of the diabetes, a worsening of their blood pressure, they gain weight, or they start experiencing all the symptoms that they had you know, at the beginning of the study before they, 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 they get the first dose. And uh, of course, because it's not ethical, you know, to just watch the patient, you know, uh, deteriorate, we have what we call rescue criteria, rescue measures. What are those? If we do see, for example, that the glucose of a patient deteriorates significantly and exceeds certain levels that, you know, I would consider unethical to, like, you know, just watch the patient without uh, intervening, we uh, allow the use of glucose medication, diabetes medication. If that happens for the blood pressure, we allow the use of blood pressure medication. If the depression deteriorates, we allow the use of depression medication. So we allow that. We do not allow, you know, the use of Cushing's medication or have the patient go back on, on the drug, assuming that, you know, you want placebo. Nobody knows that. Yeah. And the reason that we do this is because there are certain comorbidities that deteriorate much faster than others. And we would like to really show, and that's a requirement that the regulatory authorities have in our days, to see that indeed whatever improvement we saw in the first, in the, you know, in the, during the open label part of the study, when all patients were taking active drug, uh, they deteriorate upon switch to placebo. And then uh, once uh, that third phase is completed, we have a second study, which is the extension study, that's how we call it, in which all patients who complete this nine-month study uh, rolling over, and in that study, all patients taking active drugs, so they're back on treatment. And we continue that till, you know, uh, we, you know this drug uh, is approved uh, or till we determine that there is no need to continue, you know, having that study. Uh, so that's the, the design of that study. I, there is another thing that I want to mention. Uh, sometimes when you treat patients during, you know, uh, with active drug, you might see an improvement, but that improvement might not be, you know, uh, uh, but not, not meet the response criteria that we have, which are, you know, quite, you know, strict. <laughs> so you might have patients that they have, for example, improvement in the diabetes, but it's not it doesn't meet the, the, the criteria that we have for diabetes. So you might see a reduction in the blood pressure that does not meet the, you know, the criteria that we have. If a physician feels that the patient, after the completion of the, of the uh, open label part of the study, a patient has received the benefit, of course, but has not met the criteria to continue in the second part of the study, we do give the opportunity, we do allow those patients to go straight to the extension study and continue treatment. Because simply, you know, some patients might need a little bit longer treatment, you know, to, uh, uh, to, to show like uh, the, uh, you know, further improvement. Uh, so I just wanna make sure that everybody understands that it's quite flexible. Definitely all patients who complete the open label and the blinded part of the study are eligible to continue treatment in the extension study, but also patients that they receive benefit at the first part of the study did not meet the pre-specified response criteria that we have. If the investigator feels that there's a benefit for the patient to continue uh, treatment with this uh, medication, we allow those patients to continue uh, uh, in the extension study. So that's pretty much the, the design of uh, and the different phases of the study, of the GRACE study. And I think it's very important to emphasize the second uh, study, the extension study, because oftentimes the, the question that we're getting a lot from patients is that, okay, what, what if this drug works for me, right?
right? Uh, am I, you know, what if, you know, it works so well, what am I going to do next? Is that going to be like six, nine months and that's, that's it? Yes. No, yes. no. We, we do offer yeah, the extension study. And uh, that's why with every opportunity, I, I make sure that all the investigators uh, are, you know, are aware of that <laughs> and communicate that very, very clearly to the patients because that's, that's critical. I suppose that by now we've had one or more people who may have had their interest piqued by this discussion so far. Mm -hmm. uh, people out there with Cushing's that's either not yet treated or people who have residual or recurrent disease after surgery and aren't feeling well. So how do we get those people to investigators? What are, what are we able to do with marketing? What are you doing with marketing? How can those people reach out? And then how will you find them an investigator? Uh, to sort of enroll them in the study, or are you working to recruit primary endocrinologists in that in that situation? What are your plans in uh, in the future in regards to that uh, uh, big gap uh, in uh, the leading the patient to the study? Yes. So that's, that's an excellent question, Dr. Bevins. Uh, uh, here in the United States, but also you know outside the United States, we work with um, you know a lot of institutions. And uh, um, increasing the awareness of the study is something that we support, we help, but also the institution have its own websites where the patients, you know, can be, you know, become aware and understand what clinical trials are present and, and, and reach out to them. We also have uh, a website and uh, with all the contact information, phone numbers and emails that a patient can reach out directly to us and say, uh, I heard about your study um, uh, you know, I, I'm interested, you know, where is the, the closest site, you know, I can reach out to participate. And based on where they live, we direct them to the sites that, uh, you know, are, are closer to, uh, to where they live. So we do, we, we do have that. Uh, of course, there are, as you know, especially the big institutions and their, um, their websites, they do have under clinical trials, you know, this, this trial is listed. But as you know, it's, it's very difficult sometimes for patients to, uh, you know, to go through this. It, it, there are also, you know, much better ways to uh, increase the awareness of the study, which is why one of the other things that we do, we try to distribute some flyers that we have that describe, you know, the study in uh, uh, endocrinologists, not just in the tertiary institutions that we do usually see those patients, but also in community in, uh, endocrinologists which could come across that patient so at least they know where to refer the patient, not just to participate in the study, but also to be properly evaluated in, a, in, in an institution that they have uh, all the, uh, what is needed you know, for the proper evaluation of those patients. Thank you, Dr. Moraitis. And I'll just, I'll just step in and, and uh, for anyone who is interested, the, the website that Dr. Moraitis referenced is CushingResearch.com, C-U-S-H-I-N-G, R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.com. And there will be a link to that website in the article that is uh, referenced for this podcast. This would be a good opportunity to reintroduce our guests from Corseps Therapeutics. Joining Dr. Blevins and I are Dr. Andreas Grauer, who's a chief medical officer, Dr. Andreas Moraitis, senior medical director, and Mr. Mike Evans, Director of Commercial Insights, Learning and Development. We continue our conversation about the clinical trials currently under development. So Dr. Grauer, would you please give us a thumbnail sketch of that study as an overview for those patients who 
might not fully understand some of the technical speak about uh, clinical trials. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I would love to. Um, so let's first talk about the GRACE study, right? That's the study in the more traditional um, Cushing's, um, uh, Cushing syndrome. So that's a study where you, know, you have to have elevated, you know, like significantly elevated cortisol levels. Um, you have to have signs of Cushing's, clinical signs that people can see. Uh, and obviously you have to have diabetes or, or impaired glucose tolerance or hypertension. That study, because the disease is more severe, um, is a study where every patient who fulfills the screening criteria will be put on active drug for um, about six months. And then only the patients who respond appropriately to this active drug will go through a short 12 week phase where we will in a blinded fashion keep half of the patients on drug and the other half of the patients will receive a sugar pill. And we need to do that to demonstrate that the improvement that the patients have received is truly from the drug and not just because something else has happened in their lives. That's why, that's why you have these double blind designs. So, and at the end of the study, all the patients um, that have participated throughout the study can continue in the extension study and continue to receive active treatment if they so choose and if their physician thinks that they're benefiting from the drug. So that's GRACE. Now let's quickly talk about gradient. Gradient is the study in patients with the adrenal tumors that produce cortisol. They uh, usually have less severe, less clinically obvious things. Um, and they're today, in today's world, they're often not treated at all because quite honestly, it is, um, it, it's sort of a matter of scientific debate, debate whether they need um, active treatment. Watch and wait is something that many physicians do in these patients. Um, we believe that that's not the best thing to do in these patients, but we need to prove this, right? So therefore we're doing this study where now these patients, um, if they qualify, if they fulfill all the screening criteria, they're being divided into two groups. Um, one will receive active drug and one will receive the, the sugar pill, the placebo. Um, and after six months, we will see whether the, the groups are different and hopefully can show that the patients that are on active drug are doing better with regard to their hypertension or their diabetes. And also these patients after the study can then continue in the extension study and be guaranteed to receive active drug um, if they are interested and if their physician thinks that's gonna benefit them. Yeah, I know JD's one of the, the questions that, that seems to come up is, is the question of if I'm doing well on this, this treatment, Am I, am I left in the cold until it's approved? So it, it, the, the fact that in either study, if a patient is seeing response, if they're, if they're, you know, the physician overseeing them feels it would make sense for them, they, they do have that option to move into a long-term extension, which, which obviously is beneficial. It continues to help us collect important uh, safety data, efficacy data, but then it, it provides that patient an opportunity if they are responding to, to still have access to therapy. And it, and it sounds like that's something that uh, it is important to patients that are considering yes, these studies. Yeah. Well, we hear obviously that and uh, misinformation, you know, where people are coming in by reading uh, information that's not accurate or, or untrue. And, uh, you know, that we deal 
in at pituitary awareness, we deal with it all the time. And it's something that we're trying to figure out, like the rest of the world, how to resolve. Well, and it's an excellent point that you're making with regard to the, the establishing <laughs> of a drug or the safety profile of the drug, right? And and I know that in your podcast, you, you have covered the drug development process um, quite frequently and, and yeah. in a very in a way that I always found very interesting for, for listeners. And, um, and so, yes, in phase one and phase two, in these smaller earlier phase studies, you test for safety and you look for any kind of obvious safety problems, right? And, yes. um, and, and if a drug has very obvious safety problems that are not conducive to its use, then the drugs don't even proceed into phase three. Um, but you have started to establish the drug and phase three now is a bigger trial right and there the you know some of the rarer side effects that you might not have seen in phase two because it's they're smaller trials um, they could be seen in phase three which is why phase three is necessary right it's necessary to prove both the efficacy and the safety of the drug in a larger population controlled conditions that's that's why we're doing all the work and um and that's why that's the only way to bring new and hopefully better medicines to patients is to go through this process i want to pick up on what you just said because that uh, notion of bringing new and better medicines to patients is sort of the mantra of the pharmaceutical company in, in this era, really probably for the past 15 to 20 years, and I think largely as a result of uh, political motivations, et cetera, um, patients have learned to maybe distrust pharmaceutical companies. And I have seen in the past situations where they didn't want to enroll in studies because they don't trust big pharma. They're concerned about that. Uh, they think that big pharma is out to make a buck and they don't want to participate in that whole uh, income generation process of pharmaceutical companies. But my perspective, first off, is that uh, that's not what it's about. I think pharmaceutical companies definitely are genuinely interested in advancing care and providing treatment opportunities for people who have uh, common diseases, but especially with regards to your company, rare diseases. Uh, so I'm happy to see that. I've worked with Corsept probably longer than any of you. Um, <laughs> I started working with Corsept back, uh, I guess, at the at the inception or before the seismic trial was even started uh, as a consultant uh, and as an investigator early on. And I, I think it's a tremendous company, uh, very well directed uh, with a, a robust attitude towards let's find a way to take better care of people. So if there's anybody out there with those concerns that people have generally about pharmaceutical companies, I would say dismiss those and uh, recognize that this company is genuine. They're in the rare disease field and they uh, definitely aim to improve the health of this country. Well, thank you very much. That means a lot uh, for us if you say that, right? I, I know that, you know, my team, you know, people like Dr. Moraitis and, and his colleagues, you know, many of them are physicians. Many of them have taken care of patients for many, many years before they joined the pharmaceutical industry. And, and it's just a, a different menu, right? They still are trying to take care of patients. And we, we, we still, you know, I've taken care, I'm an endocrinologist, I've taken care 
of these patients for many, many years. And, um, and we've, we've, we're just looking at it from a different angle now by trying to develop new drugs, but we're still, we're still doctors, you know, we're still, we're still yeah. doing the same thing. Well, you know, it's interesting from the patient perspective, we found that there's a tremendous amount of interest to learn. That's why we did those podcasts about the process and to talk to doctors about the specific problem. What is it like? And what, you know, what are the barriers? And when you're every day doing the work that you do, what keeps you up at night? I think that is, you know, really interesting to hear because it gives patients an, insi an, an insider's view that maybe they don't get from, you know, the regular communications that we have with patients or the doctors have with patients. So it's, uh, it's really great that you guys are taking the time to explain these things. It, I think it's, it's, uh, it's extremely interest, interesting for me personally. And I think for a lot of our audience that they just want to learn more about how to deal with their disease and the options that are available and the future, you know, what's coming. JD, as a, as a patient of a rare disease, I mean, are, are there other questions that, that you feel, uh, you know, listeners out there that, 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 are, that are in the process of being diagnosed or have been diagnosed or looking for treatment options with, for hypercortisolism that, that you feel like they may, they may have if they were able to, to jump on the, the line with us yeah. that, that you yeah. might want to ask to either Dr. Grauer or Dr. Moraitis? Well, I think, uh, you know, the issue of... of uh, getting the right the information from the right sources is critical. Uh, so uh, if, you know, if I could ask you a question about it personally, uh, are there any thoughts on how, how do we direct people more efficiently to the right sources and, and try to stop the, the mayhem of misinformation that is going on in the, in the, in the healthcare world, I think today. Uh, that's creating so many problems for so many people. Uh, and then the other question that it's, you know, this may be a really unfair question to ask you, but it is more, more about looking at the future and understanding how the progress that medicine has made and investigative medicine has done in the last 10 years or 15 years. Do you ever see the, um, the opportunity or chance to be able to run a trial that doesn't have to use patients in, in phase three, where you can use, you know, molecular biology, whatever it is. I'm, I apologize for my, uh, for the stupid question, maybe. Well, I, I don't <laughs> think that's stupid. Is that a, it's yeah. interesting to think about, obviously. Yeah, I don't think it's stupid at all. So Dr. Brower <laughs> addressed that. So. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's a stupid question at all. I, I think it's a fascinating question. And, um, and, and I think trials like this are already being performed, but not in phase three, right? Okay. They are being performed in the earlier stages where I, you know, the, the, the move to personalized medicine to identifying subgroups of patients that have uh, specific, often genetic variations and in whom the treatment can be treated with a very personalized approach just for them. These things are fascinating developments that, uh, that we observe in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, but phase three is really, um, that's really reserved for now, you know, all these other things are good to generate a hypothesis and say, yeah, we, we, we think this is gonna work, right? Yeah. But then phase three is 
what we call the confirmatory trial, right? There you actually have to demonstrate that it is effective and safe. And, um, and that will probably be done in patients for a long time um, because you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah, that, of course. I think it's sort of the common theme that we, we can control all the variables we know about but one of the reasons to do randomized double-blind trials is there are things that we don't know we don't know. And the only way to control for them is to let chance play out, basically. I remember in my training back in the early 90s, late 80s, a lot of the con proof of concept studies were done in cell cultures. And yeah. especially in endocrinology, you hit a cell with a hormone and you measured what happened. And a lot of that was proof of concept for, for future therapeutics that we have now, especially in regards to treatment of patients with acromegaly, for example, proving that somatostatin analogs could work to decrease growth hormone secretion. Um, but I do think you still need the patient because we, we want to measure whether we actually get that effect. And also, uh, what are the hazards? You know, what, what else is happening that we didn't account for outside of that isolated environment in the Petri dish, for example. Um, we, are we are very complex organisms and you need to simply give patients a drug to see what happens. The other thing that I, I think it's important to keep in mind is a lot of what we do in endocrinology is replacement therapy. So we're simply trying to restore something to normal. I tell people it's often like playing Goldilocks or something is high, you knock it to normal. If something is low, you bring it up to normal. Um, and this is unlike a lot of different medical therapies that are out there, which are meant to override physiological systems. And that's where I think when you start overriding physiological systems is where you start getting into the realm of therapeutics that have side effects. So until we're sure whether we're overriding physical systems and, and even in a situation where that might not happen, we need to know what happens if we do give too much of a drug or too less of a drug. And that's where the, the, the human organism is probably the best petri dish so to speak for some of these therapeutic agents so would it be safe to say that now with today that when you get to a phase three trial you get to it with a, a much more robust knowledge about the way this compound is going to work than you maybe in the past because of the advances in 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 medicine is that true or I think that's probably true based on my experience and learning over the years. Dr. Grauer, uh, Dr. Moraitis, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, if you also consider the cost of conducting like a phase three study nowadays, and especially in rare diseases, right? Because you cannot find those patients very easily. I think um, uh, I cannot think of like companies, you know, taking that huge risk, you know, moving forward to advanced, you know, uh, phase three studies. if unless they are like fairly, you know, confident that, you know, they have something. What, what you have already mentioned, Jorge, is something that is already done, you know, it is in vitro, the, the preclinical work of this compound. It, it's, it's before we even test the compounds in healthy subjects. So let me just uh, explain on a very high level the, the, the three phases of drug development um, that we do with a new compound. <clears throat> so once a drug has past all the preclinical work, the animal work, and um, is shown to have 
promise and be safe in animals, um, then it goes into clinical testing in humans. And the first phase is their studies in healthy volunteers, where you really start with very small cohorts, start at very low doses and slowly increase the dose to find doses that in healthy volunteers can be tolerated. They're healthy volunteers, so you won't know whether the drug is efficacious because they don't have the disease that you're trying to treat. So the healthy volunteer studies. <clears throat> that These healthy volunteer studies enable you to find doses that appear tolerable. Once you have that, you go into the next step. You go into phase two. And in phase two, you actually study the drug in patients that have the disease. And there you're trying to find out okay, what, what, what of these doses that I've just determined that are tolerable are also effective? So there you start looking at efficacy and whether they improve the, the, the clinical symptoms that the patients have or some objective uh, parameters um, that, you know, whether they improve the x-rays or improve the lab or improve any other um, important sign of the disease. Um, but it's still relatively small studies and it is still somewhat conceptual. What you like to determine in the phase two is a dose that is both safe and effective. Um, and now you need to prove it. And that's where you go into phase three. Uh, and these studies are usually larger, but somewhat simpler. Usually only have two groups or maximum three groups. Um, you know, one placebo group and two active groups or just one active group, ideally. Um, and these studies are a lot larger and that's where you try to prove the efficacy, but also investigate the safety in the larger population um, to make sure that you're picking up any rare findings that you may not have seen in your small studies before. We've spent some time today talking about clinical trials. Let's talk a little bit about the molecule or the drug that's being employed to in the test to see whether or not it can be used to treat patients with Cushing syndrome. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Dr. Blevins. Um, as, as you all know, uh, uh, there is already an approved um, uh, glucocorticoid receptor antagonist in the United States. It is uh, Mifepristin and with the brand name of Corvim. Uh, Mifepristone, as you all know, is a drug that was discovered back in the 80s, but it was approved in the United States you know, only less than 10 years ago. Uh, the uh, uh, Mifepristone uh, is not uh, a medication that is specific for the glucocorticoid receptor. And the glucocorticoid receptor is, is a receptor that uh, uh, is expressed in every single cell in our body. And um, uh, cortisol is a very potent um, uh, binding site for this uh, receptor. And uh, uh, what happens is upon binding of uh, cortisol to the glucocorticoid receptor, a number of things happen in its cell that affect the function of the cells and also the function expression or um, the inhibition of, uh, of certain genes that are associated with very specific function of the cells in our body. Now, when uh, uh, there is too much cortisol in our body, this receptor is overstimulated. And as a result of that, the patients experience the, the symptoms that we do see in, in, the, in the Cushing syndrome. So the idea behind the development of medications that target the glucocorticoid receptor is to bind to that receptor and prevent the cortisol from binding to that 
in other words, decreasing the effect that cortisol exerts in that uh, particular receptor. Uh, now, as I mentioned already, the mifepristone uh, corlim uh, binds to that receptor, but also binds to other receptors in our body. It binds to, uh, for example, to the progesterone receptor, which in women, in women is, is essential for the uh, reproductive function. Uh, one of the um, adverse events that we do see in patients with Cushing's treated with mifepristone is that the endometrium gets uh, thick and over time, if that continues, some women can uh, uh, develop uh, vaginal bleeding, uh, which is uh, one of the adverse events that oftentimes limits the use of, of mifepristone in this patient population. Uh, so the idea behind the development of this new compound is to develop a, a medication that is highly specific for the glucocorticoid receptor, a medication that doesn't bind to any other receptor but glucocorticoid. And that's the whole idea behind the development of this new compound that is called uh, Arelacoinac. Dr. Grauer, do you have any thoughts? Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's obviously what we are here for, right? Is to, to develop these medicines that we feel hopefully will prove to, to have an advantage at the end of the day. So what are we trying to address? What are we trying to treat? These patients with Cushing's syndrome have cortisol levels that are too high and that are creating problems in their bodies. And because cortisol is everywhere, they have problems everywhere, right? The, the, the symptoms of Cushing's are so complex and it starts with the things that everybody sees, the moon phase and the buffalo hump. But even more problematic for most of the patients is are the, the metabolic consequences, it's the diabetes and the hypertension, and uh, for many patients, also um, psychological or even psychiatric problems, right? Depression is a huge uh, issue that is caused by high levels of cortisol uh, in patients with Cushing syndrome, fatigue, uh, bone loss, muscle weakness, all these things. So that's what we're trying to treat. And because it is caused by cortisol, also there are different ways how you can do it. Right? So for one, you can try to inhibit cortisol production. A number of drugs are trying that and, and are doing that. Or you can inhibit the action of cortisol. And the cortisol binds to a binding site in all these tissues that do all these things. And when it does that, um, it, 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 it has these actions. And our drug, the one that we're studying right here, blocks the action of cortisol at all these binding sites and therefore addresses or can address all the different symptoms um, in a, basically at the same time, just by interacting with the, the cortisol binding site. Um, obviously what you would like to do is you would like to do this as specific as possible, right? If cortisol is the problem, you like to inhibit cortisol action, not anything else. So what this new drug um, that we're studying here does, it is very specific for cortisol. It just inhibits cortisol action. Um, there are drugs and we ourselves have developed and, uh, and, um, and gotten approved uh, another drug in this field, um, mifepristone known as Corlim, that also inhibits cortisol action, does that very well. But 
it is not as specific. It also inhibits progesterone action, which is another um, important hormone. Um, and you know that has some effects, but also some side effects uh, in, in many women, especially younger women, it leads to an increase in bleeding in, in you know, vaginal bleeding. Um, and that, that is something that, uh, you know, leads quite a few women to discontinue the treatment with mifepristone because they, um, they you know, they, they don't appreciate that. And um, so what we're trying to do with this new drug is to have something that's more specific and that hopefully will lead us to similar efficacy, but maybe because it's more specific to a, um, you know, somewhat um, cleaner side effect profile that does not have the issues that are associated with the progesterone receptor. We've talked a lot about the drug approval process before. Um, this is still something that needs to be proven. We haven't proven it yet. But we've seen data in some of our earlier studies that make us very hopeful that it could actually do that. The current indication for that medication, uh, you know, Corlum is a glucocorticoid receptor antagonist. Uh, it's indicated to treat hyperglycemia, high blood sugar, secondary to hypercortisolism in adult patients with endogenous, meaning from a tumor, Cushing syndrome, who have diabetes or glucose intolerance and have failed surgery or are not candidates for surgery. Corlum is not for the treatment of diabetes that is that is not due directly to hypercortisolism. And because as uh, Dr. Moraitis and Dr. Grauer mentioned, uh, it, it has uh, antagonistic properties of the progesterone receptor, uh, it can cause the termination of an active pregnancy. So it is, it is there's a black box warning uh, for this termination of pregnancy that accompanies the, the medication. And uh, if you, you know, we, we suggest that you look at the complete prescribing information, uh, which you can find at, at, by going to corlum.com uh, that way you can, you can understand any, any of the important safety information for that product. So this has definitely been an informative discussion about some of the new uh, studies that are available to patients with Cushing's. One of the things that I've appreciated during my career is the secular trends in drug development over the past 30 years. And it's a, it's a good time to be practicing pituitary endocrinology to have therapies, uh, both uh, existing and on the horizon uh, to treat these uh, very sick, uh, uh, difficult to, often difficult to manage patients. Um, I wonder if you would like to say anything to close us up uh, with this podcast today, Mike. Oh, well, thank you, Dr. Blevins. Um, I mean, I, I really want to just thank you and, and, and Jorge for inviting us on to have this conversation. Uh, you know, we, we've always appreciate working with you both. You do, you're doing great things uh, for patients to get information out there through Pituitary World News. And, uh, you know, we appreciate that, that partnership and, and the opportunity to just talk through what we're doing and, and help get the word out because, um, you know, the, the sooner we can recruit these studies and, and get the data necessary to hopefully, you know, prove the things that we're trying to prove, that's, that's more options for patients out there in, in, in treating this condition. So uh, we appreciate this opportunity to, to, to have the conversation, answer some of these questions, and, and hopefully your listeners uh, find it as, as interesting to listen to as uh, I've found it to participate in. Well, I have no doubt that they do. Uh, that's one of the reasons we do these things, uh, because it is of interest, and uh, there's always someone out there wanting to learn more. We would like uh, to thank both uh, Orhe and, uh, and Dr. Blevins for giving us the opportunity to, to be a guest here at this podcast and to speak to your listeners. Um, it's a great opportunity for us, and you know, thank you for having us.
Our sincere thanks to Drs. Grauer and Moraitis and to Mr. Mike Evans for taking the time to share their knowledge and work. We are very pleased to have been able to bring you this important discussion directly from the people responsible for the design and execution of these two critical studies. If you'd like to get more information on the GRACE and Gradient studies, we've added links to the article containing this podcast at pituitaryworldnews.org. And you can also go directly to the cushingsresearch.com website for more details and to see if you qualify to participate. That is cushingsresearch.com. Thank you for listening.